Hello and welcome to TransAsia and the World. My name is Philip Serpak and I'm here with Galen Poor. Hi. Today we are talking about the politics of nomenclature and the market of taxonomy in the early 20th century Philippines. We are here with Kathleen Gutierrez. Kathleen is a PhD candidate at the Department of South and Southeast Asian Studies at the University of California at Berkeley. Hello, Kathleen. Hi, thank you for having me. Before we get into the details of Kathleen's work, let's hear an extract from her talk describing what the politics of nomenclature is and what about its interests there. The politics of nomenclature fascinates me, not only in a contemporary setting, but in ones that appeared centuries prior. Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus is credited for formalizing Latin binomial nomenclature. That is, the two-part Latin naming scheme for all biological species, like Homo sapiens for us humans, or Rattus Rattus for the common house rat. While some would argue and even agree that the system was established to mediate the hundreds of local names we give plants and animals, a system to create shared intelligibility across a single global scientific community. Others, like historian Londa Schiebinger in her book Plants and Empire, would argue that a kind of linguistic imperialism is at work, where local knowledge imbued in a plant, whether it's its use, medicinal application, or cultural significance, gets lopped off in service to a science rooted in European empire. Latin names at the time of Linnaeus, and even up to now, typically honor collectors, scientists, locations, and plant morphologies, that is, some of these distinguishing features of a plant. And yes, we have many plant species today that honor European men, many of whom ensured that science was part and parcel of imperial endeavor. I want to ask you um, to try to, uh, I guess, elaborate on this transitional period that you focus on. And so I'm interested if there was a botany department in the Philippines uh, during the Spanish rule and um, whether that changed with American occupation? So thank you for the question. And absolutely, there was a botany department under Spain in the Philippines. In 1858, colonial officials and private interests petitioned the government to start a botanical garden and a school of agriculture in Manila, which was the colonial capital. And these became fully functional by the 1860s. Then in 1863, uh, IGM operations began, and IGM stands for the Inspección General de Montes, or the Forestry Bureau, more or less. And the data and the material gained and collected by these officials who were part of that department would go and contribute to a lot of the botany publications from this time period. I also shouldn't fail to mention that previous to these decades, various religious orders in the Philippines had also been publishing on botany in the Philippines. Uh, specifically the works of George Joseph Camel, who was a Jesuit, and the Augustinian friar Manuel Blanco, are probably two of the more well-known friars who had published on the topic prior to the 1850s, 1860s. Your other question on how this changed with American colonization is a great one, and this is something that I focus on pretty heavily in my research. Unfortunately, towards the end of the 19th century, natural and man-made disasters essentially raised 
the botany institutions of the Spanish in Manila. These were always plagued by floods, earthquakes, fire, and then eventually war. And then by 1898, when the Spanish ceded the Philippines to the United States, the United States actually relied, in my reading, on one, many Spanish publications to make sense of the vast flora of the archipelago, and two, some of the people who had been employed by the Spanish so that they could jumpstart their own botany investigations under com- American colonial rule. Mm. And then as far as differences, I would say that there are at least two. Institutionally, under the United States, investigations were generally maintained under the same roof. Uh, the institution known as the Bureau of Science, which was established in 1901, really oversaw the investigations of the archipelago across many disciplines, medicine, public health, chemistry, and certainly botany. And this was different, of course, for the Spanish, who had independent departments sort of conducting these kinds of investigations. And the second was funding and resources. And under the U.S., I would say it was a bit more consistent. Um, institutions got to enjoy a little bit more funding on a regular basis compared to the Spanish, whose funding streams were a bit tenuous, depending on the year. Yeah. Can you say, so you said it was like friars under the Spanish who were doing like botany research? Yes. But were they just doing that on their own or were they being funded? Depending on who you ask, um, most people will say that these friars were working independently. Many of them who had spent decades of their careers and lives conducting missionary work in the archipelago would have conceivably quite a bit of time to write these lengthy natural history tracks on the islands that they specialized in. And so Manuel Blanco produced his flora, which mainly looked at Luzon, but was certainly a great compendium that also looked at the healing properties of particular plants that were used locally around him. Of course, we have George Joseph Camel, who's considered to be probably the first person to produce a comprehensive flora of the Philippines. Um, And then we also have uh, Alcina, who produced a natural history of the Visayas region or the central Philippines as well, and who really gleaned so much from the decades that he was stationed in Samar in the Visayas region. And so we have these also to work with, but in many ways they are considered sort of outside of the ambit of official Spanish botany projects. Mm-hmm. So just a, a quick question and point of clarification here. Um, you know, in the 1860s, as we're moving into the 20th century, we have kind of a, a rising local intelligentsia, the Illustrado class. Are Filipinos participating in this contribution to knowledge or, you know, cataloging, cataloging of, you know, different uh, botanical plants? And I would say, I think that's a great question. And it's also a pretty major element of my current research. Uh, And the answer is yes, absolutely. Filipinos or natives, local actors are absolutely producing knowledge for the Spanish colonial project. And of course, also for the US colonial project after 1898. We see this in the form of folks who are producing, for instance, the paintings that would go into the magisterial publications of this time period. Several of these individuals were trained in art, drawing, but a lot of them also took up botany and agriculture. And combining these skills, they were able to produce lithograph after lithograph after lithograph of beautiful Philippine prints from the late 19th century onwards. We also have record of students who are trained at the School of Agriculture, 
And then under the United States, who were trained at the College of Agriculture in the province of Laguna on the island of Luzon. And these mm-hmm. sets of students were doing very similar things as well. They were getting trained in collecting, in surveying lands, in being able to go out into far-off provinces and bring back new undiscovered material to Manila. And then, of course, we have botanists themselves who wrote and published on Philippine plants. Now, the, their works are a little less well-known, but certainly they exist. And so that's been a really exciting thing for me to be able to unearth at the archives uh, in the United States, in Spain, and certainly in the Philippines. So it seems like the United States comes in around 1898 and has um, kind of a pre-existing uh, scientific network in which they can tap into. Yes. So then kind of to get more onto your research topic, maybe we can just discuss a little bit about what is taxonomy and nomenclature and then, you know, why is that important past the Spanish period and into the American period? Taxonomy, as I would broadly define it, is a branch of the life sciences that deals with classification. Nomenclature, for me, is something like a body of names that we use in a particular field. As my systematist colleagues in the Philippines would say, uh, Latin binomial nomenclature helps them standardize the hundreds of species that they work with, thereby giving them kind of a shared language to engage other systematists internationally. Sorry, can you say what a systematist is? Sure. A systematist is a specialist in the field of a particular biological science whose main role is to kind of revise the various taxonomies that they might be working with. And so, for instance, if you were a specialist in the Philippine dipteriocarp and you were a systemist, you might revise the entire family or by understanding which species actually still would be considered part of that family and which species, based on your own evaluation of how things have evolved or other developments in the field, no longer belong in that family. And so when it comes to taxonomy and nomenclature, and a lot of the feedback that I also get from Philippine systematists themselves, I think that the people who use and promote Latin binomial nomenclature might see it as, for instance, a universal language. But I think that this is a bit lofty. And so I look at taxonomy nomenclature in my own research, and I definitely pull from the opinions of the Philippine systemist, systematists that I work with. And I think that the users and the proponents of Latin binomial nomenclature might see this as a universal language, one that supports standardization, uh, is a mode of convenience. But I think any claim to something being universal fails to recognize how specialized and relatively small that specialization and specialized community might be. And I think if we give a scientific language more power than we admit, well, especially in their claims to becoming universal, that's where I think the problems and the politics of how we view science can start to emerge. And this is a a great transition to your case study. You use this to look at the SCICAD, right? You have particular actors maneuvering to try to um, name this particular plant. And so can you just describe what the SCICAD is and... How is it used first locally? Because there's a, a Filipino 
or Tagalog name for it. And then maybe how if it has uses, I guess, for world consumption or for the world market. Yeah, mm-hmm. and what's it look like? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, what is this cycad? I think the, the cycads are really cute. Um, so they're seed plants. <laughs> uh, and they kind of look like miniature palm trees. Imagine like a very stunted palm tree, but it's not a palm, just to be clear. Uh, it's its own family. It's part of the the one that I look at, the Cycas wede, is part of the Cycadaceae family. And yes, you're right. In the Philippines, it can commonly go by the term pitogo. And so pitogo can refer to any of the various species of cycad that can be found there that grow endemically in the Philippines. The one that I look at grows or is only known to really grow on the island of Culion in the province of Palawan, which is around the central Philippines. And locally, people use the seeds, for instance, that that are rather large for trinkets, for toys, for ornaments and decorations. They can also use uh, the the things that look like palms that sort of grow out of the top of the cycad for Palm Sunday celebrations or religious ritual. And so these, and I've actually just read recently too, that there are parts of the cycad that have been eaten or get used for particular ointments to treat ailments. And these were part of kind of older records of how people may have been using the pitogo in the past. And so the particular focus that I have is on the cycaswade, right? The one that is growing in Culion. And I look at cycaswade in particular because I'm interested in how American colonial scientists become fascinated with the idea mm-hmm. of discovering and naming the species. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is their interest with, with the cycad? Sure. So at the start of the century, various American scientists were traveling around the archipelago to try to find the location for a perfect leper colony. Now, a leper colony under the United States imagination would help the public health interests of the colonialists in the Philippines by making sure that leprosy could be contained. And so various scientists roamed around the archipelago and they stumbled upon the island of Culion. And that's where my botanist of interest, Elmer D. Merrill, first spotted the cycad. And now Merrill, as a botanist, of course, would be interested at this time at discovering any new species. And the Philippines, for the Americans at the turn of the century, was a hotbed for completely undescribed, unknown new species that could be career-making for many of these young scientists who had been deployed there. Culion would eventually become the site of this leper colony. And in many ways, because the leper colony was there, Merrill could return or have colleagues who could return to that site to try to get more information on that cycad so he could eventually describe it in his own work. So it was for like advancing the personal reputation of these individuals within the scientific community, right? Sure. I mean, on a basic level, I would say yes. I would say yes. And this isn't just specific to botanists. There are fish specialists. There are foresters. There are pathologists who are coming to the Philippines at this time and really making a name for themselves because the colony becomes this site of uncharted territory and a place for them to produce quite a bit intellectually for local, but then also international consumption. So, okay, getting back to kind of these characters, Cycad is called Cycaswade. So it ends up being named after Herbert Wade. Is that correct? Yes. But 
Elmer Merrill, he's the one who is trying to find this leper colony, and he kind of first brings attention to the Bureau of Science about this plant. And so how then does it end up getting named after Waday as opposed to, to Merrill? Sure. So you're absolutely right. We're on that same track. Merrill spots the cycad uh, at the start of the 20th century. And since he's not able to return to Culeon, really in his own writings, he just sort of says, I spotted an interesting cycad. It might be new, but I can't really confirm that. And so for decades, he sort of puts this on the back burner and waits you know, for the proper moment when he can get the right material to really confirm whether or not it was a unique species that he had seen when he was first surveying lands for the Culeon leper colony. Now, by the 1920s, uh, William Henry Brown, who becomes the director of the Bureau of Science, enlists the help of Herbert Wade to try to track down the species. Now, Herbert Wade becomes the main pathologist and physician at the Culeon leper colony, which is a fully functional institution by the 1920s. Now, at the same time, Merrill enlists the help of Albert Hare to try to also find the cycad material once again. But by this time in the 1920s, Merrill is in California. So he leaves the Philippines in 1923 to become the dean of the College of Agriculture at the University of California at Berkeley, my current school. And then he eventually leaves to become the director of the New York Botanical Garden. And so it's in these letters that I was able to discover that Merrill had asked Albert Hare, who was an ichthyologist, right, a fish specialist, to go down to Culeon to try to collect samples of the cycad. At the same time, William Henry Brown is doing so, but with Henry Wade. Eventually, both Brown and Merrill come to each other and they say, hey, I think we're both doing research on the same species. Because Merrill notifies Brown, and he says to him very excitedly that after Hare's materials had come in, he was certain that this cycad was new, and he wanted to name it Cycas Hooray after Albert Hare. However, William Henry Brown had to respond to Merrill and say, hey, I've actually collected quite a bit of material as well. It should probably be named after Herbert Wade because I'm afraid he's going to think I'm pretty negligent not naming the species after him. And so this was really exciting for me to discover specifically because this little difference in a name, right? The difference between Cycas Hare and Cycas Wade, you know, could seem kind of negligible, you know, but for me, it's, it's fascinating because it opens up a huge conversation about kind of personal politics, professional status making and status giving. And then, of course, the institutions that become very invested in this idea of being able to claim new plant species. Uh, one thing that I liked about your study was this idea of a durable correspondence network. And would you say that this is kind of what ultimately helped the CICAD be named after Waday as opposed to Albert Hare? In a way, yes. Yes. And I think those durable correspondence networks work on multiple scales again. So not only are they operating within the Philippines, right, to make sure that material in Culion, which was pretty far from Manila and difficult to reach at the turn of the century, mm. get to Manila, right? But these are correspondence networks that are existing between the Philippines and California, the Philippines and New York. And so without them, 
I would say Merrill wouldn't have been successful in even introducing and describing the species uh, in 1936, which is when he published on it, if it weren't for these correspondence networks that were giving him the material, sending him the information, and helping him really affirm whether or not this was a species worthy to describe. And he wouldn't have been able to have done this uh, since he was so far away in New York. And as I just explained, it almost seemed that, you know, William Henry Brown had a little bit more of an advantage because he was in Manila. Uh, and also because the climate would permit him to sort of grow the cycad on Bureau of Science grounds to see whether or not, you know, the germinating material was going to be helpful for his description. But again, it's these networks that I think helped Merrill become successful and to be the one to eventually be the first person to publish on the Sycaswoodae. Mm. And you discuss, I think he's the director of the Philippine or the Bureau of Science at this time, Kaysun Bing. At this time in the 1920s and into the 1930s, Eduardo Kisum Bing is a botanist who is working for the Bureau of Science. And so what role does he play in this correspondence network? I think he plays an incredibly important role. And I believe that since he's one of Merrill's main correspondents based in the Philippines throughout much of Merrill's career after he had left, Kisum Bing becomes incredibly helpful to Merrill in making sure that materials could get to him, for instance. So in the correspondence that I was looking at, at some point after both Merrill and Brown decide that indeed the cycast should be named after Wade, for some reason, material wasn't able to reach Merrill. So he would petition the Bureau of Science, he would send letters to Brown and say, hey, where is that material? I need it so I could start describing the species. And for whatever reason, because those delays were happening, Merrill had to look to Kisum Bing, who was a much more reliable correspondent, in my opinion, to send him that information on the CICAD, to send him the materials, to make sure that it got shipped to New York. But also in those letters, we're discovering other bits of information, like Bureau of Science trouble, uh, problems with the Great Depression and how it was impacting the Philippines. And certainly we learn a little bit more about what was happening with science with the approach of the Commonwealth era. The letters become important for me for this because even though they might deal with the psychad, I love that you know there are mentions of drama and struggles that are happening during this quite politically turbulent time in Philippine history. And so as I had mentioned, in 1898, the United States really begins its official occupation of the Philippines. And approaching about 1934, 1935, the United States and the Philippines begin negotiating the possibility of a Commonwealth state for the Philippines, essentially laying the groundwork for full independence for the islands. Now, it's in these letters when we're able to see even Kisum Bing sort of bemoan a lot of the politicking that's happening at the time in the Philippines regarding what would happen to the Bureau of Science once the Commonwealth era were ushered in by what would eventually be the Tidings-McDuffie Act. And so the Commonwealth era begins in 1935, but it's through these letters, again, that Kisum Bing writes about his own uncertainty about funding for the institution and what becomes his main preoccupation, which is to make sure that all of the parts of the Bureau of Science or all of its departments stay intact. Uh, one of the biggest issues that I see in the letters or that I've noticed is Kisum Bing becomes very protective of the herbarium. And there are a couple of American scientists who become pretty intent on moving the Bureau of Science herbarium to a different location, to the province of Laguna, which is further south of Manila, 
to a college campus instead. And so in the letters between Kisumbing and Merrill, you know, in their own network, Merrill learns about how this herbarium might actually be completely detached from the very bureau that he helped create at the turn of the century. Does it end up moving to Laguna? It does not. It does not. It is meant that choice or the, the petitioning to try to move it to Laguna gets met with quite a bit of resistance, not only from Kisumbing, but by other Filipino scientists and some Americans as well. Mm-hmm. So then I imagine that Kisumbing acts not only as kind of an integral part of your research and in terms of kind of showing this local agency that takes place in the Philippines in the naming and kind of development of uh, scientific knowledge. Um, how do you see Kaysumbing um, as having agency in the naming or the politics of uh, nomenclature? Because the example that you bring kind of in the beginning of modern day politics of nomenclature seems as if um, there might be less local agency in the naming of some of these uh, species. And so I'm just wondering how you see Kaysumbing hmm. being having agency. Sure. I mean, I think to answer that, I should foreground my own response by kind of mentioning that when it comes to agency, I do think that the historian is quite a, in quite a bit of a position of power to inhere the question of agency into particular historical actors. And so whether or not, you know, the particular historical actor felt like they had agency themselves, that's, you know, very difficult for me to, to say. So I will say, though, as a historian, in hearing that agency and what I believe, you know, to be of my historical actors, I would say that, yes, uh, Kisumbing had quite a bit of power, you know, directing his own career in botany, but then also supporting the careers of other prolific botanists of the Philippines. And so Kisumbing becomes well known in the history of Philippine science, not only because he writes, you know, dozens of articles on the pepper family, on orchids. He also becomes the national scientist of the Philippines in 1980. And really, even in this particular case study, I think Kisumbing evidences quite a bit of agency, specifically in his role in keeping the Bureau of Science together. So even if it's not with this specific species, the Saikaswudae, what I am seeing is how Kisumbing is able to wrangle sort of discursive support even material support to make sure that the Bureau stays together. And he's, again, informing Merrill of all of these institutional rifts while at the same time trying to band together with other scientists to keep the institution intact. This isn't to say, though, that Mer- uh, that Kisumbing didn't participate in other elements of the politics of nomenclature in the history of science. I would say we'd have to look at his longer career of publishing on new species to see where exactly he was uh, participating directly. Okay, so he's really helping them get access to all these species on the ground and kind of like in a a supporting role? Sure. I mean, he could be seen as a collaborator at the time, but certainly, you know, in his own regard, he is producing his own independent research as well. And so like I had Mm. mentioned, he's known to be a specialist in the pepper family in the Philippines, but also he was an orchidist and published quite a bit. Um, in the realm of orchidology throughout the 20th century. And so while he's completing his own tasks and his own research, he is supporting Merrill as well with this particular cycad. Okay. So earlier you were talking about kind of challenging the universality of, um, you know, the Latin nomenclature 
for describing all types of species. Um, so for for this case where Kaysen Bing is actually he is totally isn't he totally working within the the Latin-based nomenclature and like Western scientific tradition and ways of understanding botany? Like is he pushing back against that? Does he try and have any influence on the naming of this cycad? Or do you do you know what I mean? Like, is he totally working within that system, or is he trying to change it at all? I would say that Kisum Bing, in kind of my assessment of his work and the correspondence that I've come across in various archives from him, is absolutely working in that system. Yeah. Yes, I think the colonial botanists at the time, and even Kisum Bing after the Declaration of Philippine Independence in the 1940s, they do work to uphold local nomenclature, and they do so by making sure that it's collected and published somewhere. And so Kisumbing in the 1950s writes a book on medicinal plants of the Philippines, and a lot of that publication, uh, its strengths rely on the fact that various names for plants are in the local languages that we can find in the Philippines today. Merrill does the same in his works as well. But I would say by and large that both of them do subscribe to the idea of an international nomenclature that they can use both in their own practice, but in their own publications as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're kind of, we all live with that, where there's these Latin names that actually most people don't use in daily speech. Yes, absolutely. And I'm, and I love that. I actually do love that. And I also love that there is you know, binomial nomenclature. I appreciate that it becomes a very and has been a very useful tool for scientists to be able to agree upon a particular standard way of naming things. But like you and I, I also like that I call a cactus a cactus and I yeah. can't pull Latin binomial off the top of my head. But if I were to approach someone on the street right now and ask them to point out a cactus to me, they would likely be able to more so than if I were to name the Latin binomial. This is where I think there's a kind of a beauty in the negotiation between how we think of nomenclature, because yes, to an extent, Latin binomials can be internationally used, but I don't think that they fully displace the very unique names that we can find based on location, based on culture, um, based on time period, right? And I think it's the durability even in these names that we have to remember so that we don't sort of inhere so much power, right? And the idea of, of scientific nomenclature, right? Which I think mm -hmm. has a lot of study um, from various historians because it's, you know, in the names like Pitogo that one could go to the Philippines and very easily point out a species of cycad, right? And I love that. I really appreciate that. So maybe you could say how uh, in more recent times, uh, maybe people in the Philippines have been thinking or talking about this. Because I know at least in a lot of other parts of Asia, um, there's definitely not some urge to, you know, let's pride our indigenous knowledge over Western modern science, you know, and um, try to create some alternative. Instead, a lot of, you know, governments and, um, intellectuals are trying to grab a hold of those epistemologies of Western modernity, or, or we just say modernity, and claim it as their own. And if you would say like, um, no, you're giving in to uh, Western imperialism, they'd say like, are you trying to deprive us of the tools to become modern and master mm -hmm. science? 
Um, so what are people saying about this in the Philippines? Sure. In like the later 20th century or today? Yeah, well, thank you so much for asking that. In May of 2018, I attended the annual meeting of the Association of Systematic Biologists in the Philippines. And they actually invited me to give a talk on Cycaswade, this species. And I remember uh, someone from the audience stood up and she had gotten a little bit angry that in my abstract, I had used the phrase or the term settler colonialism. Yeah. And so she really came back at me and said, well, can you point exactly to what it is about Latin binomial nomenclature that is settler colonial? Because I don't think I'm settler colonial. And I thought that was a really great opportunity, one for me to make sure that my own intellectual work um, can respond to the interests and the concerns of contemporary biologists. Yeah. But that too, I can also have dialogue with someone who is an active botanist in a science that was introduced by the Spanish and the U.S. empires. It can be a bit of a sticky situation to kind of very clearly point out that, hey, this is an intellectual tradition that was pretty much brought in and proliferated by an earlier colonial order. That's not to say, though, that it can't take some newer form now in 2019. Absolutely, it can. But I do think it's a very necessary dialogue to have. That said, I do believe that there are other communities and institutions in the Philippines that are trying to operate outside of strict binomial Latin, Latin binomial nomenclature, right? Mm. And so, and this can be seen in very sort of nuanced ways. If you look at a book, for instance, um, on medicinal plants in the Philippines, some will make a conscious effort to alphabetize the book by local name, right? And mm. not to arrange the book by uh, a classification scheme drawn from botany. Others might arrange the book based on the, the ailment or the concern that one might need curing or treatment for, right? Mm -hmm. But in those little ways, I actually think that it's, it's where we see how people might be arranging this work or prioritizing the local language, that they are sort of flexing that you know, bit of power against this idea of the lingua franca of science. I'd like to thank you, Kathleen, for having a conversation with uh, Galen and I. I can absolutely talk about uh, the Philippines hours upon hours. So I hope to continue this conversation <laughs> with you. And um, I wish you the best luck with your research. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. And I look forward to talking to you both again. Check out our website, transasiapod.history.wisc.edu. Or you can find us on Twitter, at transasiapod. Join us next time to learn more about TransAsia and the world. Our podcast is sponsored by UW-Madison's Department of History, and our podcast artwork is designed and created by Katherine Randall.